You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, looking at chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, and we'll be reading together the first seven verses. You'll find this on page 923 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 14 and verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Well, Paul and Barnabas had been laboring as missionaries in Pisidian Antioch, you remember. And in the synagogue, Paul had been invited to give a word of exhortation, so he preached Christ. He pointed out the great significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he said, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And the word had its effect, and the people begged that he preach the word again. So the next Sabbath, we're told, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But the Jews opposed the, to extending, were opposed to extending the covenant privilege to Gentiles. This was supposed to be a Jewish thing. And so they contradicted Paul's preaching, and they publicly reviled his ministry. And that's when the apostles said this. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. And as Paul and Barnabas were driven out, they shook off the dust from their feet, which was a solemn gesture that symbolized the curse of God. Even the dirt was corrupt. It was no different from calling the unbelieving Jews mere heathen. So then in Iconium, a hundred miles southeast of Pisidian Antioch, located in Central Asia Minor, Paul and Barnabas continued their ministry. It was in the province of Galatia, which is modern Turkey, on the great plain of Iconia. And it was located strategically on the trade route to Ephesus, so it was commercially important. This was a major city. There was learning and culture and sophistication and also plenty of criminal activity. 
not an easy place to live. And so when going there, the two missionaries displayed what I believe is a great deal of courage. They showed mental strength and moral courage to persevere through difficulty and danger. You know, John Wayne was the one, that great theologian, who said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. Paul and Barnabas were driven out of Pisidian Antioch, and they didn't throw in the towel. They saddled up, and they went to the next city and entered the local synagogue. And as a result of preaching Christ, we're told in verse 1 that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed again. And it was a tremendous harvest. They were enjoying incredible success. The Spirit of God was moving and working through their ministry, and that was the reason that Paul and Barnabas came to Iconium, to win souls. The reason they went to Cherokee, to win souls. And as a result of their ministerial labors, people were passing from death to life. They were being translated from this kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And I don't think I'm wrong in saying that it was a spiritual awakening. It was a local revival, and the spirit was at work. You could see the fruit. And as Luke's record illustrates, such a revival is often followed by opposition. Whenever God brings spiritual awakening, it stirs up satanic forces. The devil and his legions work hard to create confusion and turmoil, even in the midst of a great revival. And so we're told in verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. The same thing had taken place in Pisidian Antioch. And here in Iconium, Satan was working through the unbelieving Jews to incite the unbelieving Gentiles. Later on, when Paul and Barnabas would revisit the church plants and encourage them, this is what they would say. Continue in the faith, for through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Many tribulations. And their own experience was proof of it. But as mentioned, they were courageous men. They remained a long time. They were undeterred by the opposition being stirred up by Satan. Because the Holy Spirit in them was greater than he who was in the world, according to the Apostle John. So, Luke says, they were speaking boldly for the Lord. And God confirmed his message by granting signs and wonders through them. We're not told of the details there, but you can imagine healings, such miracles as that. And the Bible says that he was bearing witness to the word of his grace. I love that. It's a true statement about the nature of the gospel. It is a word of grace. He bestows on us what we don't deserve. The gift of eternal life is something so difficult for us to fathom. What is that? Eternal life. We who have rebelled against his word, who typically gripe against his providence, who have pursued our own desires and disregarded his law, in Christ he not only forgives us, but he offers to us this free gift of everlasting life. We're forgiven, we're accepted, we're adopted into the family, and we're made heirs 
of the kingdom, and that's grace. It's the word of his grace. It's one of the reasons we call it a great salvation. It's great because of that to which we're called. And the opposition to Paul's ministry had been predicted by the risen Lord. You may remember that when Ananias hesitated to visit the newly converted Paul, the Lord said this to him. I will show him, speaking of Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Paul suffered. And he rejoiced in his sufferings for the sake of Christ and his church. He considered it a privilege to bear hardships for the glory of Jesus. And so he found himself at this point at the center of a spiritual revival and a spiritual storm. So intense was the opposition that attempts were made to assassinate him. And those who sided with the Jews mistreated him. Some tried to stone him to death, so they fled to nearby cities of Lystra and Derbe, where they preached again. But it wasn't until they did not flee until their ministry in Iconium had come to completion. Because this is what I'm going to argue. It was because of the opposition that they remained. The Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds, verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. That word so can be translated therefore. Therefore they remained for a long time. It's a purpose clause. In other words, the conduct of the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, is in response to the behavior of the opponents. This fierce opposition quickly turned ugly and violent, and that was the reason why they stayed. Who does that? To stay in the place where they wanted to kill you requires courage. Half the city not only despised the message, but they hated the messengers. And I want us to consider the three components that I believe served for their spiritual strength and moral courage. Three vital components. First of all, Paul and Barnabas sincerely believed in the truth of God's sovereignty. And we know this because they were speaking boldly for the Lord, the Lord Jesus is the Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and he controls the cosmos. He upholds, we're told, the universe by the word of his power. And Paul and Barnabas were persuaded of that. It was a conviction with them. You know, some people talk about God's sovereignty. We throw around that word all the time in our circles. God is sovereign. They refer to God's kingdom, but it's rare to find someone who actually lives as if he or she believes it, myself included. It's rare. These two missionaries knew that all things had been ordained by the Lord. Nothing escapes his watchful eye. Nothing is outside of his control. John Gerstner put it wisely when he said, there are no screws loose in the universe. He's right. And for that reason, Paul and Barnabas had no reason to be afraid or anxious. 
They were convinced that each event and every detail was under divine control. As Elder Parkin read this morning, he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this belief was foundational to Paul's moral and spiritual courage. Think about it with me for a second. If I believe that he ordains every detail, even down to the hairs of my head, why should I be anxious? Many of you have heard the name Thomas Stonewall Jackson. He was a general in the Confederate Army. He was a Christian. And he not only held firmly to the doctrine of God's sovereignty, but he lived like it. As a new believer, he is said that he was disinclined to believe this important truth. How can God be sovereign over every detail? But after careful and prayerful study, Jackson eventually embraced it heartily. And for the rest of his life, Stonewall Jackson accepted this truth and it exerted a powerful influence. It was this doctrine, I think, more than any other that helped him face the dangers of war. So his biographer, Robert Dabney, tells of an episode before the Battle of Fredericksburg. It was during the conflict, and Jackson walked out with his attendant to survey the enemy. And I'm quoting Dabney now. A Union sharpshooter suddenly arose out of the tall weeds at 200 yards distance, leveled his rifle, and fired at him. The bullet hissed between the heads of the general and his aide, who were standing about two paces asunder. Thereupon, he turned to him with a sunny smile on his face and said, Mr. Smith, had you not better go to the rear? They may shoot you. And in the words of Dabney, the audacity of the sharpshooter seemed to strike Jackson as a pleasant jest. But insensible to fear for himself, his caution only concerned itself for those committed to his charge. You see, it was Jackson's firm conviction in God's sovereignty that gave him true courage. And the same conviction motivated Paul and Barnabas to preach Christ. The truth of God's sovereignty is at the very heart of the Christian religion. A.W. Pink said, though the world is panic-stricken, The word to the believer is, fear not. All things are subject to his immediate control. All things are moving in accord with his eternal purpose. And therefore, all things are working together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Are you anxious? Do you lack courage? Like me, so often. Cultivate a belief in the sovereignty of God. Psalm 91, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. You see, Paul's moral courage was the fruit of a sincerely held belief in sovereignty. But that's just number one. The second factor, which was equally important, was a commitment to a just or righteous cause. You see, Paul and Barnabas were convinced that what they were doing was righteous. It was not only God-ordained and God-directed, but it was also God-honoring. 
Because if your cause, whatever it might be, is unjust, then you will never create a courage, courageous spirit. Proverbs 28.1, perfect example. Solomon says, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And the difference between those two is the commitment to a just cause. A wicked, a wicked person might appear bold in the face of extreme danger, but as soon as his guilty conscience is awakened, he trembles with fear. His secret fears haunt him. Thoughts of final judgment plague him. It's true that Adam knew no fear until after he became a guilty creature. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You see, Adam had pursued an unrighteous cause and he was plagued with a guilty conscience. David says in Psalm 53, the wicked are in great terror where there is no terror. It's all internal. And if I believe my cause is just, if my pursuit in life is righteous, well, then my conscience is clear. Paul and Barnabas were preaching the word of God, the message of salvation, and they announced the fulfillment in Christ of the ancient promise of salvation. Jesus is the woman's seed, the descendant of David, the kinsman redeemer, and in him a sinner has the hope of escaping final judgment. That's a righteous cause. They were announcing the good news of the gospel. The very message itself is a vindication of God's justice to forgive us. He pardons sinners and yet he remains perfectly just because he does so in Christ. One of the secrets, I believe, to the strength and courage of the great protector, Oliver Cromwell, was this very thing, a righteous cause. We're told that as the war began in England, he was told, Cromwell, and he recognized that the main cause of weakness in the parliamentary army was the lack of younger men. So Cromwell set out to enlist youthful soldiers. And this is what he said. I will raise men who will have the fear of God before their eyes and who will bring some conscience to what they do. And I promise you, they shall not be beaten. And you know what happened? His biographer notes, Cromwell never lost a battle. He and his army were convinced that they were fighting for the Lord. It was a just cause. And if you and I keep our consciences clean, we need never get into fear, give into fear. Psalm 46, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. So what about you? Are you laboring in a just cause? Is your conscience clean? I understand daily sins. We all have them. We all have to repent on a daily basis. That's not what I'm saying. Is the focus and the thrust of your life for a just cause? And can your conscience be clean? Without that, there is no courage. 
But then there's the third factor. And this is the abiding presence of God himself. Vitally important. We have to have a conscious sense of God's presence. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, my cause is just. But is he with me? Paul and Barnabas were convinced that he who created heaven and earth was with them. That God had commissioned them to proclaim the gospel of salvation to the Gentile world. Because the Holy Spirit had said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And nobody would have disputed the fact that they had been sent by the Holy Spirit. And if he sent them, he's with them. And if God Almighty is with you, personally present with you, why are we afraid? God said to Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When Peter was in prison on the eve of his execution, the Bible says that he was sleeping. Why? Because Peter realized that God is sovereign, that it was a just cause, and that the Lord was with him. He gave no thought to the danger. He trusted in the providential care of his father. Why am I so hesitant to do the same? So true courage depends on a belief in God's sovereignty, a commitment to a just cause, and a sense of God's presence. You have those three, and you're like Cromwell. You're like Peter. You're like Jesus himself. We all need courage, regardless of who we are and what we're called to do. You might say, well, I'm not a missionary. My life is relatively peaceful, calm, and quiet. Well, that may be true. And though some callings need more courage than others, we all need it. We need courage to resist anxiety about the evils that surround us. We need courage to resist worry about the horrors of war. It requires courage to persevere in a less than perfect marriage or a less than perfect job or a less than perfect church, right? We need courage to do the right thing when the crowd is on the wrong side. We need courage to be honest, just, and equitable when our competitors are cheating. Our fellow students are cheating. We need courage to admonish a friend or to rebuke a fool or to warn a proud, self-satisfied unbeliever. And ultimately, we all know, we need courage to die well. That's not an easy thing to do. It's something we all have to do. And some of us are naturally timid. That's how God made us. Some of us are not overly daring. I've been accused of being extremely overcautious, which I think I am. But if that's us, then what we need to do is to develop a sincere belief in the sovereignty of God and a settled conviction that what we're doing is just and a firm persuasion that the Lord, according to promise, is with us. And if we do that, then with the Spirit's help, our courage will steadily grow. So this highlights the importance of a good, sound theology. That's why we're doing what we're doing in the Sunday School. The more we know about God, the more we'll believe in his sovereignty. 
The psalmist says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. Those who know your name put their trust in you. You don't know his name, you won't trust him. Courage will grow in proportion to the knowledge of God that you obtain. When sin is rampant, when lawlessness abounds, this will be a strong support. And while the statesmen are staggered by the unrest, and they are, they scratch their heads. They don't know what to do. You can remain calm, cool, and collected, knowing that our sovereign God works it all out for eternal good. Second, it also underscores the importance of a clear conception of biblical ethics. You know what that is. How do we know what a just cause is? By evaluating it according to his word. And a person's ethic has to do with his or her morals. The notion of right and wrong. A biblical ethic is one that's based upon what God has revealed. So let me ask you, do you know the moral law? If somebody asked you, what's the sixth commandment? Could you recite it? Do you know the Ten Commandments? Can you distinguish between good and evil? We need to inform our consciences to be capable of discerning right from wrong because the righteous are bold as a lion because God has made them righteous. But if your cause is unjust, your conscience will take away all of your metal. Nothing saps a man of courage like a guilty conscience. David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He had pursued an unjust cause. He had taken another man's wife. A careful, conscientious study of the moral law will help us to discern right from wrong. And if you look at the Catechism's exposition of the Ten Commandments, you'll develop a biblical ethic. Finally, this brings to light the importance of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Only a believer can ex expect the abiding presence of God. Joshua was strengthened by this. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And a believer has the indwelling presence of God who will never leave him or forsake him. And so the question this morning is, do you know him? Do you know him? Are you trusting in him? Are you rejoicing in him when he plays the piano and we sing our songs of praise? Is your heart rejoicing in him? If so, then you with the psalmist can say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? May God give us all moral and spiritual courage to face the difficulties of life in a fallen world. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the example of your servants, Paul and Barnabas. We see them displaying such courage instilled within them by their belief in your sovereignty, their conviction that their cause was just, and their belief that you were with them. We ask that you'll cultivate those same things within us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.